Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Welcome. Thank you for being with us here. And thank you for those that are maybe on Facebook still watching us. We're praying for your return soon, hopefully. And just thank you for joining with us as we continue in our journey through Luke's gospel. Today we're in Luke chapter 4, verse 31. So grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn with us to Luke chapter 4. When we ask the question, what is this word? What is this word? Now, over a decade ago, the New York Times published an article on the art of the interruption. It states that interruptions clearly gained a foothold in American discourse these days and is proving a powerful weapon for influencing the national conversation. Some prominent interrupters include Representative Joe Wilson, who yelled, you lie at President Obama. Remember that during one of the State of the Union? Or could we ever forget Kanye West, who crashed a televised thank you speech by Taylor Swift? Wait a minute, wait a minute, I'll, I'll give you your due there. No one likes interruptions, do we? Whether they're at work, that annoying coworker, in our entertainment, commercials, or quiet time, phone calls, children, etc., just interrupt us and prevent us from doing the time and using the time the way that we want it to do. For many of us, interruptions disrupt the flow and the pace of our work, our thinking process, and our plans. However, many studies are now showing, which is interesting, that interruptions actually can be helpful. Who would have known? One such study noted that, much to the researcher's surprise, subjects who were interrupted completed their work faster than a control group and that their finished products were just as good. That doesn't make sense. Well, that is an interesting concept. Since many of our complaints are centered around either people, circumstances, or things that interrupt us. But what if we viewed interruptions differently. C.S. Lewis wrote, the great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruption of one's own or real life. Do you understand that? Here I am trying to do what I need to do, what I really need to do. And he says, what if we viewed them differently? The truth is, of course, is that what one calls the interruptions, that child that continually bothers you, that phone call that is ringing, ringing that co-worker, that email, are precisely, listen to this, one's real life. That is part of your life. The life God is sending you day by day. In other words, interruptions are all part of God's plan for our day. You know, I had a prayer up. I was looking for it this week. I must have taken it down because I got bothered with it. But I did have a prayer above my desk that reminded me that interruptions were actually God opportunities. And I can understand that. There's nothing worse than when you're in a message, you're in a study, and the phone's ringing, or people's coming in, and all of a sudden it just, you realize, you know, I am acting negatively to God opportunities in my life, if we truly believe that God orders our steps and that all moments are God ordained. Jenny Williams sums this up when she writes, what if we saw interruptions as a gift? What if instead of resisting them out of frustration, we actually saw interruptions as opportunities to be open to God and what he's trying to do through that person, through that circumstance? through that interruption. Now, what is interesting is you and I continue through Luke's gospel, the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus's kingdom mission was constantly interrupted by people wanting and needing his attention. And let me ask, do you want to guess how Jesus responded to the many and various interruptions in his life? We'll find out this morning. Last week, we read that not everyone was excited and pleased with Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, especially since he refused to perform any miracles there. Instead, they responded, remember, with hostility and sought to kill him. However, in ironic fashion, Jesus miraculously escapes their murderous intent. 
Now this week, Luke takes us to Capernaum, where Jesus does prove his identity and confirms his ministry by exerting his authority through his teaching of scripture, through silencing a demon, and delivering a man held captive by an unclean spirit. So with that, Luke chapter 4, look with me at verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority. So Father, these words that we're reading this morning possess authority, an authority that people are seeking, an authority that people are needing, an authority, Lord, that we desire and crave, but yet many times reject, ignore, deny. So with us as we come this morning, give us wisdom, discernment, as we try to separate uh, true truth from my mere opinion. Father, I pray that we would respond positively to your work. And Lord, I pray and thank you once again for Luke's gospel and the gift that it is to us. In your name we pray, amen. As we come to this passage, Jesus is back at Capernaum, which is the center of many of his miraculous activity, as that's the center of his ministry as we are in the Galilean period. Remember, we're about a year off from the temptation of Christ in his baptism. He has spent some time in Judea. And if you're saying, well, what happened prior to that? If you'd like to in your own reading, go to John, John's gospel, and read the first three chapters. You'll see what happened before Jesus moves to Galilee. And Galilee is really the center of what Jesus is going to be doing for most of his public ministry up until about chapter 9, verse 50. And when you go from there, you'll see that he heads back to Jerusalem. So it's interesting as you read that to see where Jesus is doing it. In many times, it's important because you understand the area that he's at as his teaching does change and the way he does miracles are different as we go there. But he's now at Capernaum. It had a population of that day of about 1,500 people. So for you and I, it may not be considered a big town, but in those days, that would have been a a, a pretty good size uh, area. It was mainly a fishing village. It was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was the hometown of Peter and many of the other disciples. And as we learned last week, Jesus' practice was to visit the local synagogue and teach the scriptures. And though we are not told what his message was that day, we can, we can pretty much safely assume that it was the same in every city that he visited. Jesus is launching his kingdom mission in proclaiming the good news that he has come to liberate the outcast, the blind, the captives, the oppressed, and bring in and favor or usher in the favor of the Lord. Now, what is good to read is that this city responds so much differently than his hometown of Nazareth. Luke writes, as we look again, that they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Now, this astonishment is is not based on the fact that, well, isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? But on the fact that he they knew that he was not a trained rabbi. Now, we see that more in Mark's gospel, where it says that they were astonished for he taught with them that had authority and not as one of the scribes. They understood that he was not a trained rabbi or a teacher or a scribe. Typically, the rabbi and scribes would base their teaching and and, and their interpretation and their application of scripture on the chain of tradition and on what was spoken in the opinions of their predecessors. So very much like I today, I don't speak of my own authority. I speak only what scripture says, hence why I always pray. You need to filter between what is truth and what's my mere opinion. Because believe it or not, you can gasp out loud if you need to. I am sometimes wrong. Monday morning is always a treat as I wait for Tony's Slack or email to share with me some, some funny clip that he has. One of these days, Tony, you need to put a blooper together of all the different things that I say that make no sense. And uh, it's pretty, he goes, did you say this? What were you thinking? It's always funny. But this is what they typically did, but not Jesus. He taught as one who had authority, clarifying what scripture truly meant. You'll recall from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus would say, you have heard it said. That's citing tradition, citing predecessors and the opinions of others. But what did Jesus always say? But I say to you. Jesus was always needing to correct the error and misunderstandings of the religious leaders' interpretations and applications of Scripture. One pastor uh, remarks that Jesus taught with a certainty, a confidence that came with an exclamation point. 
and exuded and radiated and oozed power. And why not? Jesus wrote it. In the Gospel of John, in John uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, he was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and look at this, and without him was not anything made that was made. And that included the Old Testament scriptures that was read every week in the Sabbath. Jesus was the original E.F. Hutton. Anybody here remember E.F. Hutton? Those commercials, a few of you? Look at that. There's two. There's two. There's three. Come on. You just don't want to date yourself is what's going on here. Now, for those of you who may not remember E.F. Hutton, it was an old commercial. Commercials were something that you had to watch in between shows. Okay. Those were your original pause buttons. I guess I need to explain everything, don't I? (laughs) But it emphasized the authority and trustworthiness of an investment financial firm. Its famous tagline was, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Yeah, there's some of you, see. Even today, there are certain people that you and I consider authorities and trustworthy. And there are people, whether it's a social influencer, a politician, if there's a few of those. But there's someone that you and I set up and listen or, 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 or read when they write. There are people that we trust. I pray that there's there's those people in your life. You understand. So those are the E.F. Huttons in your life. It could be just a person. It could be your spouse. It could be a mother, a father, whatever. But they're people that you pay attention to. Jesus was that original E.F. Hutton. He was a man who spoke with authority, not because he just knew everything and, and understood everything, but because he was the word. He spoke with an exclamation point. I love that, that line of that, uh, that pastor. Their astonishment was understandable. They knew that they were listening to someone special, one who spoke not of other men's opinions or relying on tradition, but one who spoke with a confidence that only comes with authority. Things seemed to be going so much better than his hometown visit. Jesus was teaching, people were listening and responding to his message of the good news until they were interrupted by a man possessed by a demon who is not at all happy with the words of Christ. Look at with me at verse 33. So we see that demonic interruption. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Entering the spotlight on this small assembly is a man who had a spirit, Luke writes, of an unclean demon. Here Luke is pointing out the difference between Jesus and the demon. We had already seen that Luke has emphasized that Jesus was filled with the spirit. And here also was a man that was filled with the spirit. But Jesus was filled by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, while this man was filled with a demon. A spirit that Luke writes is unclean and in his book, Exalting Jesus in Luke, one writer notes that a demon is a fallen angel who rebelled with Satan against God and was cast from heaven. They are committed to opposing God's rule and everything that God does. They hate God and they hate God's people. Their entire mission is to resist God. But when Jesus speaks, demons shudder or tremble. Luke is describing a man who is oppressed by a demon. Pastor John MacArthur comments that this means demonized or under the internal control of a demon. All of the cases of demonization dealt with by Christ involve the actual indwelling of demons who utterly controlled the bodies of their victims, even to the point of speaking through them, causing derangement, violence, or rending them mute. And as you and I read through scripture, we'll see that there are periods of Israel's time where there seems to be more activity, more demonic activity other than normal times. And this is, this shouldn't surprise us as Satan is always working against God's plan. That this service is interrupted by this demon should not be surprising. As we've already noted that Jesus is that messianic king who will bring God's reign and blessing. And the plan of redemption will not go, with oppos- go without opposition. There will be always those who will oppose God's plan. 
Since the beginning of the creation, we read that Satan and his horde of unholy demons have worked against the plan of God, attacking his children, creating havoc wherever they go. It started in heaven. It crept into the garden. It spilled over into all of the affairs of the world and right into the very heart of man. From the beginning of our time, the adversaries of Yahweh have sought to sow doubt, despair, and destruction. They seek to kill, to maim, and destroy. Yet, Scripture promises that they will be defeated. Amen? This good news was first proclaimed in Genesis 3.15. Where after the serpent, Satan through the serpent had tempted Eve and she, Adam and El fell. God says, I will put enmity between you, speaking of Satan, and the woman, speaking of the race of humanity. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This speaks of God's plan of redemption that we find woven through its story, through the pages. To send a prince who will slay the dragon and win the girl. Satan has tried to derail that plan throughout the ages by deceiving the world, corrupting Yahweh's chosen people, and by attempting to have Jesus killed as a baby. When that failed, he tried to tempt him in order to disqualify himself as the Redeemer. However, the Messiah has appeared, and he is now exerting his authority over all things. That which Satan offered to Jesus several weeks ago in the temptations... If only he would bow down and worship him. Jesus is now ready to take all of that by force. For that is his right to do so. And those demons may be scary, frightening, mysterious, and powerful to us. Satan and his demonic hordes are powerless against the king of kings. So here... Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He is attacked, interrupted by demonic forces. Holy war is launched against Yahweh's adversaries and the demons know it. The demonic expresses his surprise and displeasure when he shouts, ha, that's what that that word is translated from the Greek, means surprise or displeasure. He then follows up, the demons speaking of, with two questions and a statement. The first question is essentially, why are you interfering with us and our, our, our schemes? Why are you messing with us? Leave us alone. We don't have a quarrel with you. Just leave us to our devices. The second question, have you come to destroy us, displays their fear and recognition of their power. I can almost imagine Jesus responding to the question, have you come to Jesus or have you come to destroy us by simply saying, Yes, for that's what he's come to do. The demon even winds up giving testimony to the true identity of Jesus. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. His very identity sends shivers of fear into their very being. James captured this fear when he writes in James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. However, he says, even the demons believe shudder. Turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We hope you have enjoyed this week's One inter- interesting we observation made by Pastor If you Thabini. have any questions or comments, when he comments please that, email us listen to at this, info the demon took at possession of a man, org. and what Be did sure he do? Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. That seems odd. To learn hey, more about let's, our ministry, let's, let's, let's dwell this man and now let's go to church. You think that the last place that the demon would want to go is to go to Til church. Until next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life. I don't think he was going to meet the Son of God, the one that he himself knew that one day would judge over him and throw him into the lake of fire. He goes on to write that Satan loves to oppose Christ's work right where the Lord is meant to be worshipped. That should not be surprising, as I would surmise that many churches are led by pastors and elders and deacons and trustees that are part of the demonic horde. They are unregenerate and have fallen sway to the demonic influences of the world and abandoned the true gospel of Jesus. I am not saying that they are oppressed or, or, or dwelt by demons or they're a demon themselves, but they have fallen sway to their schemes and manipulations of scripture. Maybe hear some this morning or watching or listening to us right now. 
You're in league with the adversaries of God and you may not even know it. You yourself are deceived. You believe in a different gospel, or yet you don't know if there is Jesus or if there is a God. You say, well, I, I'm on the fence, but I have to share with you, there is no spiritual fence. You're either with God or you're, for, or you're against God. There's only two sides. There's the narrow road and there's the wide road that leads to destruction. The Apostle Paul warns his protege, Timothy, of this when he writes in 2 Timothy, I believe you should be there in chapter 3. Look at verse 1. But understand this, and just think of what you've read on the news and what you've seen lately. That in the last days there will become times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. That's quite a list. But we go to verse 3. Heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, brutal, not having a loving good. All right. Verse 4. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen to this. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. It should not surprise us that you may find Satan or the host of demons inside a church, leading a church, or pastoring behind the pulpit. It is incumbent of us as the church to protect and guard against any gospel that is contrary to the gospel of Christ. I'll take an amen there. We must only look to scripture as our source of the truth, for it contains all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, as we move on to Jesus' response to this unholy but divine interruption in verse 35, we see a divine intervention. As in verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him, the demon, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Luke informs us that this, that this demonic interruption is followed with a divine deliverance. This is the first of 21 miracles that's recorded in Luke's gospel. And Jesus displays his power to set at liberty one who is held captive and oppressed by a demon. Unlike the movies, the television shows, and many other myths about demons and exorcism, there is no incantation or invoking the authority of another. Jesus speaks and silence the demon with two commands. Be silent and come out. And he does. Now what typically captures our attention in our passage like this is the demon and its power. They're so mysterious. We don't know much about them. They're, uh, they are mysterious and unfortunately, <clears throat> they have been romanticized by culture. However, what should not be overlooked in this demonic interruption and divine intervention is that of the plight of the unnamed man in this passage. So I want you to take a moment. I want you to think about him. Focus on him for a moment. We do not know who he is. We don't know his story. We don't know how he came to be under the influence of this unclean spirit. Yet here he is. One life of his one moment of his life is captured and immortalized on the living pages of scripture for all of eternity. We do not know how old he is. We do not know whether he was married or had children. We are not given his tribe, his station in life, or any other information. To most of us, he is inconsequential. For many of us, we don't even think of him in this passage. We're focused on Jesus and the demon, the cosmic battle happening among these two supernatural forces. He's just a human device to demonstrate the works of Satan and the power of Christ. But make no mistake... Make no mistake, and I want you to listen to this. Jesus knows this man intimately. So now let's focus on this man. 
his suffering and his pain, much of which you and I cannot comprehend or understand. But think of this man. Jesus knows this man intimately. He fashioned every part of his being. He sovereignly placed this man here at this moment in history. He allowed himself, even ordained, I would say, this man to be indwelt by an unclean spirit of a demon. This was no interruption, but a divine appointment for Jesus to not just show his power and authority, but listen here, but to demonstrate his great love and compassion on this man. Now, I have to tell you that when I was typing this out, I had to stop and walk away from my desk. I remember this period because it just struck me as I was thinking of you and myself and my family. Jesus knows me intimately. I have been interrupted just as much as you and I. I have probably been that interruption in your life. There are things that have happened to me that have happened to you and you look and say, why is this in my life? Am I just some cosmic device for God and Satan? Does my life not matter? Jesus had come to set free the captive and give liberty to the oppressed. This man's name may not be known to you and I, but make no mistake, it is known to God just as yours is. In love, Jesus sets this man free as the demon comes out violently, but Luke makes a point that seems to have no bearing on this passage of all, that this man is spared any harm. Now that's unlike many other instances of demon uh, exorcisms that we will see later in Luke. He's not known, but God loves and cares for this man. And some of you may be saying, I don't matter. People look past me. They don't see me. And if I come up to them to talk to them, to ask a question, they just see me as interruption. My family sees me as an interruption. My spouse sees me as an interruption. But you are not. You are God's divine, ordained vessel for his glory and for your good. Your suffering is not wasted. Your hurt has a purpose. It is more than just a bargain. God loves you and cares for you. Theologian Joel Green comments that the demon's work is ended. He goes off the stage. However, the man is still there, is free of its influence, and he's restored to his people as they see that he is delivered. Maybe his wife was there, maybe his children, or maybe his mother. We don't know, again, know what relation, but the people were able to be restored together in that assembly. I pray, may God deliver us from the works and schemes of Satan and his minions. Let us find hope and joy in the words of 1 John 3, 8. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And I'm here to ask you this morning, what works of Satan are in your life this morning? What is it that you need to have destroyed? In what way do you need to be delivered from an oppression, from an enslavement to sin? In what ways are you an outcast and you need to be brought back into the family of God? God loves you. He knows you. And he's willing. He's come to set you free. Now this amazing event elicits a response of amazement from the audience. Look with me in verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Exclamation point. Do not miss that. The reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. They definitely got more than they bargained for when they went to church that morning. Any children that complained about the boredom, any adult that might have complained about the interruption of taking their day of rest and going to the synagogue, 
Any attender who that was outraged at the interruption, how dare they interrupt the service, certainly changed their mind when they just witnessed the power and the authority of Jesus. Not just this authority and power in words, but also over the demons. The residents of Capernaum were astonished and amazed at the authority that Jesus wields as he delivers a man oppressed by a demon with just a word of rebuke. I'm not sure how they were going to follow up the next weekend, but for now they were buzzing with excitement and wonder that caused them to spread the news to the rest of the area as Jesus' reputation grows. Now, this passage in Luke is powerful. As commentators Fee and Stuart write, that Jesus is the divine warrior who engages Satan in the holy war on Satan's own supposed turf. What are you doing here? This is our place. Satan may be saying that in your heart today. Out, Jesus, what are you doing here? Have you come to destroy us? Jesus simply looks within your heart and says, yes. That's what I'm here to do. Make my day. We can do this. He now accesses this authority over through the teaching of Scripture and dominion over demons. He will take by force what Satan once offered to him, but believes is his own. Now, as you and I come to think about this passage, we learn that Jesus is that messianic king, the promised one, who will bring God's reign and blessing. And this passage illustrates Jesus' powerful mystery on behalf, or ministry, excuse me, on behalf of the outcast, the enslaved, and the impressed. Jesus is giving his listeners, now listen to this, this is important. I think this is powerful and we miss this when we read scripture. So I want, as we go forward, this is prompting us as we go through the rest of up to chapter 10. Is Jesus here is giving his listeners, Luke is giving the original readers and even us here today. He has given his listeners a glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth the kingdom of God, where Satan is defeated and vanquished. Justice, peace, and righteousness are not just bywords and slogans, but in Jesus' kingdom, they are reality. Now, compare that with the world today. Who do you look to for authority? There's no respect. People have disdain for each other. Evil seems to abound. Interruptions uh, bother us and just uh, tear off our life. I mean, 2020, we've just had one big, big interruption. I mean, it was just winter just a moment ago, and now we're almost on summer. What happened to spring? We don't know. We were interrupted by so many things, things that are important, but yet God ordained. Even the times that we go through today. Now, as we know, Jesus, the Jews, excuse me, the Jews will reject their Messiah. They will reject Jesus. They will reject his message and they will reject his rule. However, that is not thwarted God's plan of redemption. His kingdom is here and is growing each and every day as one by one, our hearts accept the gospel and submit to him. Though peace, justice, and righteousness seem very far from the world today, it rules in each heart that is filled by the Holy Spirit. How can you and I live in a day like this uh, with peace that passes understanding? Because the kingdom of God rules in our hearts. We know that this world is temporary. All of this will be gone. Those who march in the streets one day will be going to Jerusalem to the King of Kings to offer their offerings to him and to sing Hosanna to the King of Kings. Luke here is giving us a glimpse of what that'll look like when there's no longer the outcast, when all are part of God's family, when the captives and the oppressed are set free and find liberty. This is a promise that should give us hope when we think that Christ will one day return and establish that new earth and new kingdom. It gives us hope today to endure the suffering, the tribulations, the assaults from Satan, and the rude interruptions. Now there are three points I want to make for this passage that will help us understand Jesus' power and authority that should still astonish and amaze each and every one of us. Here we go. First, only Jesus has the words of life. 
Only Jesus has the words. This is not a word that people like today. They're like the demons who rudely interrupt and say, wait, 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 Jesus is the only way? Yes, Jesus is the only way. Oprah will not agree with that. Many others will not agree with that. But Jesus is the only way. Turn to John chapter 6, if you would please. And in that chapter, in this, we will read a difficult portion of Scripture that involves Jesus' argument with some Jews after he had fed them with just a few fishes and a small few loaves of bread. And Jesus, knowing that their desire was to make him king and that it was from a selfish motive, began to speak harder words to wean out those who truly were not following him because they believed in him, but yet they just wanted something from him. Look at verse 53 of John chapter 6. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life. This almost seems like vampirism. What, what in the world is going on here? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Look at verse 37. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, speaking of him, his body, his blood. Not like the bread the fathers ate, speaking of those in the wilderness. Remember, they ate a manna for 40 years and died. They ate a bread, but died. But whoever feeds on this bread, Jesus says, my, my body, and my blood will what? Live forever. Now, that's a very difficult saying. And I am not going to explain it today because we just don't have the time. But look at verse 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum, the same city. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, speaking of heaven? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those who were do not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is what I told you, that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. And after this, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples, what? Turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, we're not speaking of the 12. Jesus had many disciples rather than just the 12. He had a group of people who followed. And we see at this time is that they, they turned back. The, the saying was too hard. This interrupted their vision and their fantasy of what Jesus was about. They just loved Jesus' wonderful words. They, they loved his miracles. They loved what he did for them. But look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, and you must underline this or highlight this in the Bible. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of what? Eternal life. And we have believed and come to know. Now listen to what they say. That you are the Holy One of God. Have you seen that phrase? You are the Holy One of God? Yes, demons and true disciples recognize that Jesus is the Holy One of God. But follow him takes the words of life that come from Jesus. Jesus only has the words of life. Jesus speaks with authority and power because he is the bread of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way to eternal life but through him. His words are precious and life-giving. One old hymn captures with the lyrics, beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. I don't know who you're looking to this morning. I don't know who your family and friends are going to for authority for wisdom, for discernment, to understand the times. But you and I should only point them to Jesus. For only Jesus has the words of life. Only Jesus can set free those that are the outcast, those that are oppressed and blinded.
those that are held enslaved to their sin. Secondly, we must understand that there is a spiritual world and it consists of demons that are active, deadly, and persistent in their attempts to draw us away from God. The Apostle Paul warns us this. You'll see this in Ephesians 6.12 on the monitors. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in this heavenly places. Your enemy is not your spouse. It is not your parents. It is not your children. It is not your boss, your co-workers, or your employees. It is not your neighbor. It is not Black Lives Matters or Antifa or Trump or Obama or anyone else. Our battle is with the forces of Satan. Yet instead of fearing them, we are called to do battle against them. Paul informs us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4, that our weapons, our warfare, are not of the flesh. They do no good against supernatural forces. But we have divine power to destroy these strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Anything that would, that would diminish the gospel or diminish Christ must be destroyed. Any thought must be taught, brought into captivity. The way you and I resist and fight these supernatural enemies is with the truth found in God's word. To do this, we must bathe ourselves in the wonderful promise and great doctrines found in its pages. Let its truth astonish and amaze you with authority and power. What are the forces that you and I face? What are the battles? Unforgiveness, unloving, unkindness. All these things that we find in Scripture. Many of us to the point, well, well, I'm not struggling with the big ones. I'm not stealing. I'm not idolatrous. You know, I'm not adultery. I'm not doing all those big things. Murder. But yet we're hiding and harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in our heart. That itself is a demonic interruption in your Christian growth. We have much to say about that through Scripture. Thirdly, Victory over those supernatural forces, over unforgiveness, over unkindness, is assured. Victory over them is assured. Now, I know that many of you squirm and grimace. Some of you might grim and laugh when I say the story of the Bible is that the prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. But let me tell you that those simple nine words perfectly capture the plan of God. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 once again and for the last time. Colossians chapter 2. Once you and I have accepted the words of Jesus, once you and I are aware of the supernatural opposition against God, we must be deployed in a war, knowing that God has already won the victory. In verse 6 we read of Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you've received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Look at verse 8. This is the key. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He's speaking here of Christians. Now that you follow Christ, don't be brought back into captivity by worldly philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, speaking of Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the Holy One of God. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all, rule and authority. Scripture tells us that that great dragon has been defeated. Though he is still depicted as a roaring lion seeking to devour God's children, he has been detoothed and defanged. His days are numbered. His time is almost up. Every day brings us closer to the time when he and his followers will be thrown into the lake of the fire. And God's children will be rewarded. And until that day, you and I are called to resist him, to battle against him, and to live out the victory given through the obedience found in Christ. Now these truths, those three truths, ought to compel us to spread the good news to everyone that you and I know. It should go viral. 
using every influence we have to share with others the power and authority of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. They need him. Desperately. You say, no, 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 they need, they need food. They need justice. They need a, a place to live. They need an income. Yes, they may need all of those things, but even those things are found through the gospel of Christ. What they need more than being delivered from injustice or from, from hunger is to be delivered from Satan and his enemies or in his forces. They need to be delivered. They need to be redeemed. Now, as I said earlier, what typically captures our attention in this passage is the demon and its power. Yet I want us to consider not only in this passage, but rest in our study of Luke. And just by the way, usually during the summer, I take a, I take a seven to 10 week and we go in and we go in the Old Testament or New Testament and we look at, at a character or a biography. This year, we are not going to do that. With all the interruptions that we had this year, I want us to focus on Luke up to 9, chapter 50, his Galilean ministry. So we're going to work our way through those chapters this, this summer. And as we're going through that, and as you're reading along with us, and I, I want to think, Cindy calls me all the time, what passage are we in this week? Do that, read that. I think she, you read chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 for a long time. We were in that passage for four weeks. What are we reading this week? 1 through 13. Didn't I read that last week? Yes, read it again. All right. She was so glad she thought I was like a record on repeat. Records are little round things that we used to put on. You put a needle on them, you would listen to music. As we go through there, let me reread what I want us to consider not only in this passage, but in the rest of our study in Luke. It's not just the power and activity of demons, but I want you to see the beauty and the majesty and the power of Christ. Luke is writing to give us certainty and confidence in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer of God's children. And in reading his gospel account, let us not get entangled. Here's the warning. Let us not get entangled in the weeds of minutia. Let us not get entangled in religious arguments. Let us not get entangled in historical backgrounds. All good things that help us understand the passage, but let us not get entangled in those weeds. No, let us see Jesus as scripture intends. As we continue to work our way through Luke in the upcoming months, here's what I want you to write a word. Write, if you're taking notes, write this word in the middle, bold and italics if you're able to, big letters, 14, 15, 16 font, the word behold. B-E-H-O-L-D, behold. I want us to behold the authority of Jesus' teaching. I want us to behold with astonishment his miraculous power. I want us to behold with amazement his compassion for those who were in need of deliverance. Ben and I are reading a book, Jared Wilson. And write this down too, because I would like for you to get this book. The Imperfect Disciple. This book is just shaking the foundations of many things. The Imperfect Disciple. And in that book, he writes that the word behold, it's an old word, you and I don't use it very often. It means to look with consideration, with appreciation, with a fixation and a transfiction. Transfiction, I can't say the word, but be fixated on it. <laughs> behold. I even practiced that word. To behold something, to behold something is to hold something in our vision. Now, you and I behold things that we shouldn't be beholding. But let's put on the things. Scripture says, I will put not before my eyes any worthless thing. You and I, our lives are interrupted by mainly worthless things. Can you, can you cast those aside? And behold, hold uh, this in our vision to let the weight of it rest on our minds and hearts. So as you read through scripture, don't just read through it quickly. Spend every day reading, even if it's a short passage that I give you. And I know I can be redundant, but redundancy is the key to learning. But let the weight of scripture just wait on you. And let it just heavily set there. And see the beauty and the wonders of who Jesus is. And let us do that as we read the account of Christ. Amen?
I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. I'm going to ask you just to pause. Take a moment and behold, consider what we just shared with you through Luke chapter 4, 31 through 37. The residents of Capernaum and church, Jesus teaching, the errant eruption of the demon, and a man delivered. And the astonishment is God works. What is God speaking to you this morning? What interruptions are preventing you from worshiping, from beholding with wonder and amazement and astonishment the teaching and the power of Christ? Would you ask for him to silence it, to rebuke it? Would you cry out, Lord, help me, deliver me? He's willing to do so. Would you cry out to him this morning? Would you respond to the Holy Spirit's work? Father, we pray that you would do so and much, much more. Thank you for this assembly. It is so good to see and be with our people again. Lord, I pray that you just continue to work in our hearts. As we work through Luke, I know it can be difficult many times going this slowly through your book, but it, it's here and its pages are eternal. They are the very words of God. So let us capture them, behold them, and let it point to Jesus. And Father, may it compel us to share his wonderful good news to the world that, does de that so desperately needs it. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.